and welcome to this session on Gentle Bayesian Updating with David Manley. I'm Habiba and I'll be the MC for this session. We'll be starting with an 18-minute talk by David, then we'll move on to a live Q&A session where he'll respond to some of your questions. Now I'd like to introduce our speaker for this session. David Manley is an Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. He teaches at the graduate and undergraduate level on a wide range of areas in philosophy. Here's David. I teach philosophy at the University of Michigan, and I'm going to provide a gentle introduction to Bayesian updating. Uh, because effective altruism is obviously about doing good in a way that's backed up by evidence, we want to make sure that we can change our beliefs in a way um, that responds to the evidence. And so you've probably heard a lot about things like um, updating on evidence, about um, having priors, degrees of confidence, and so on. And so this is supposed to provide um, a non-technical introduction to the ideas um, behind the sort of Bayesian framework for um, dealing with evidence. And um, so I'm going to start with some a simple example. Um, it's sort of a baby toy example, and I'll be exaggerating the degree to which we have like very specific degrees of confidence just so we can do the math. Um, but you know, obviously we, we're more or less confident in things. We shift our degrees of confidence, um, but often they're not extremely specific. So let's say you're you think probably your friend's not home because it's it's a it's 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 noon on a Tuesday or something, and so you think she's probably out. Um, and then you see that her light is on, and so you get evidence that she's home. And now the question is sort of what do you do uh, to sort of integrate that initial belief that she's not home with your new evidence? And we're not very good at doing this intuitively. There's lots of evidence from social psychology, cognitive psychology, that we do this really badly. So Kahneman and Tversky's work and so on. Um, just to give you an example, so uh, let's suppose, you know, maybe this is a statistical fact that she's only home at noon on a Tuesday uh, one in five times, or maybe you just have roughly that degree of confidence to begin with. Um, and then let's suppose... Uh, she's three times more likely to leave the lights on if she's home than if she's not. Home. That's really all you need to get um, the degree of confidence you should have afterwards. But we're actually not very good at doing this intuitively. So, um, you know, just looking at this, most people can't say, you know, I have undergraduates who have taken calculus and all kinds of advanced um, math classes, but they can't do this. And they certainly can't do this in their heads. Um, those who know, uh, like Bayes' theorem, will sometimes take out their <laughs> pencils or write out the theorem and try to plug in numbers and so on. But it's fascinating because the math is, it looks like it should be extremely simple. Obviously, you can't just multiply um, a fifth by three because then it would be way too easy. Um, and that actually, that would give you uh, three fifths probability that she's um, uh, um, home. And that's too high. Um, that would make it more likely than not that she's home. And in fact, it's more likely than not that she's not home, even after you get that piece of evidence. But getting at exactly the right degree of confidence here is uh, slightly tricky. That's the whole, the whole idea. In my last talk, I, I talked about how it's really important to be able to separate out your prior degree of confidence from the um, strength of the evidence that you get. Um, and uh, we'll see why that matters here. So uh, this is the... <laughs> theorem that you know, I used to use, it tells me that my new degree of confidence in this hypothesis should be, this is a form of uh, called Bayesian conditionalization with the right-hand side uh, is a Bayes theorem, um, so spelled out fully. Um, but what's really interesting, if, if, if those of you who know these terms uh, or have seen this equation, you know, think about the fact that um, 
there are only a couple of terms in here. A probability of not H is derivable from the probability of H. And, and so you just really have these three things. And it's, so it's very annoying that you have to plug in all of this stuff. So even for those of you who know this, um, it, it might be nice to, to hear about a, a, a simpler way that you can actually just do this in your head. For those of you who don't understand any of this, that's totally fine too. All you really need to know are a few uh, simple things. The first simple thing is what it is for something to be evidence in this framework is that, um, actually just what it is for something to be evidence, let's be real, um, is that that observation is more likely given the hypothesis than uh, given that the hypothesis is false. So think about the lights case. If your friend's the kind of person who leaves her lights on all the time, then it's just not any evidence at all that her light lights are on. If your friend's the kind of person who literally only leaves her lights on when she's home, never leaves her lights on when she's not home, then uh, it's great evidence, really strong evidence, almost conclusive evidence that she's home. If it's somewhere in the middle, then, you know, the evidence is not as strong. So really, um, that's all there is to know about um, whether something is evidence and, and all there is to know about the strength of the evidence. So you may have heard of um, things like p-value, which is sort of a way of trying to evaluate the strength of evidence, but this comparison, the probability of the observation given the hypothesis, probability of the observation given the hypothesis is false. Compare those two things. How many times more likely is one than the other? That's called the Bayes factor. That actually is a, is, is a stronger, more informative, richer um, way of evaluating the strength of evidence than, um, than anything else, including p-values. So, but just intuitively, it's not, forget about the notation and all that, just intuitively, it's just, you know, Consider this observation and then consider, hypothetically, if, if the hypothesis were true, um, how likely is it the world would look like this? You know, how likely is that I'd make this observation? If the hypothesis were false, would the world look like this? Would I make this observation? And compare um, uh, those likelihoods. And that's the strength of the evidence. And notice, um, this is something that I emphasized in the previous talk, that has nothing to do with whether you think the hypothesis is probably true or false, like you might think it's almost certainly false, the strength of the evidence, then you're going to have to integrate with the fact that you have reason to think it's false to begin with. But the strength of the evidence itself is totally independent. We just asked this hypothetical thing. Um, supposing H were true, how likely is it that I'd experience this observation? Supposing H were false, how likely is it that I would make this observation? Uh, um, that requires actually being able to set aside uh, your, I called it in the last um, talk, decouple your, uh, your prior confidence in H and just assess those hypothetical things. All right, so we've already said that we know um, she's three times more likely, or, or we figure she's three times more likely to leave the lights on if she's home than if she's not home. So the strength of the evidence is represented by three. It's three times more likely, right? So so the strength of three, a Bayes factor of three, or a um, uh, um, strength factor, you might call it, of, of three. And our prior confidence is one-fifth. So we need to be able to integrate these two things. I've said it's not as simple as just multiplying one by the other. But so all we need to do is a simple, uh, there's, a, there's one simple little hump that we need to get over, and that is to stop thinking in terms of fractions for our prior confidence or probability or chance or whatever it is. You know, often our, our prior confidence is governed by some uh, something that we know about chance or some statistical fact or something like that. And we usually express these things in terms of fractions or in terms of percentages. Um, but if we're going to do 
do it this way. We need to stop doing that. We need to shift over into thinking in terms of odds. Okay, so remember from fifth grade, <laughs> um, odds are pretty straightforward. And, that we, and, and then we're gonna get this equation. So this is the master equation. This is, I showed you that big equation before, the Bayesian conditionalization with the right-hand side exploded using um, Bayes' theorem. This is all you need. Prior odds times the strength of the evidence, the strength factor, the Bayes factor, which we've already introduced is our new odds. So now really all we have to do is convert our prior confidence into odds. Now, odds, easy, right? Um, uh, the probability of picking a banana at random from these fruits is one in five. Um, and so what, what, what that's representing is that fraction has the total, right, um, as the denominator. Uh, and instead of using the total as a denominator, what we're going to do is just look at the sort of relative ratio here, the um, banana um, number of bananas compared to number of apples. So one to four, for every one banana, there's four apples. And we just don't think about the total, right? We just think about the two groups. That's it. So that's odds. Um, so the odds of picking a banana from this group is one to four. So now, so we can convert. Um, before we said the probability of her being home on a Tuesday is one in five. We're going to say, no, for every one day she's home, there's four days she's not home. The way we're representing it, the odds is one to four. And now we can just multiply. What we're going to do is multiply the side of the odds that we got evidence for. This, um, the one represents uh, the side of the odds in which she's home, and the four represents the side of the odds in which she's not home on a Tuesday. We're going to multiply the side that we're getting evidence for, which is the one, right? That's the one that um, it's more likely that the lights are on if she's home and just multiply that by the strength factor we get the new odds that's it our new odds um three to four and in fact that means our um, if you want to express it in terms of a fraction um our new um degree of belief should be three sevenths so it's a little less than half as i said before so that's it that's the whole thing but uh we'll run through some other cases actually first a little visual this is like a little flow charty thing um you know start with a one to four um, uh, odds, and then just multiply the side that you're getting evidence for by the strength factor, and then you end up with the three to four odds. Perfect. Okay. So this is a um, just a case with different numbers. Um, suppose in the background, um, you know that this disease affects one in a thousand one people, and you want to be tested. Um, so um, you know. You're, it's not like there's more evidence. You don't have um, any any uh, symptoms or anything like that. You're just being screened. And the test itself is never wrong if you have the disease. So if you have it, it's definitely going to tell you that you have it and tell you that you don't have it. Uh, no false positives for people who, um, so no false negatives for people who don't have the disease. Uh, no false negatives for people who do have the disease. Um, and that's wrong 5% of the time if you don't have the disease. So um uh, so so of the you know of the people who don't have the disease five percent of them are going to have false positives the people who do have the disease and they're all going to get positive tests there aren't going to be any false negatives all right so that seems like a pretty good test and um if you ask uh if you ask most people um should I be now very worried that I have this disease they say yes and in fact if you go to harvard medical school and you ask um 
attending physicians and medical students and house staff, what the um, probability is that the person has the disease after this test and you know, given the background fact that, uh, thousand, that one in a thousand and one people have the disease to begin with, um, you get a really interesting spread, right? You get the people who know how to do it and they get the right answer about 2%, although some people make it even lower. Um, but then you get a, a whole bunch of people just basically ignoring the base rate and doing something with that fact that um, it's wrong 5% of the time if you don't have it um, and getting 95%. Um, and so those people are gonna really freak out their patients um, if those are the things that they know about the test because uh, the correct answer is about 2%. All right, well, we can look at how we get that. So our prior confidence one in 1,001, convert that to odds, it's one to 1,000, that's convenient. Um, strength factor, well, that's really easy in this case. Um, the probability that I'd get a positive test if I did have it, remember, we're setting aside, in order to evaluate the strength of the evidence, we set aside entirely um, how, how likely it is that we think the hypothesis is true. So it's a totally hypothetical assessment. If I have the disease, what's the probability that I get this positive test? The answer is one, certainty. Um, if 100%, that is. Um, if I don't have the disease, what's the probability I get a positive test? Well, 5%, okay? So it's a strength factor of 20. This is very strong evidence. And keep in mind, you know, this is a kind of strength factor of 20 is a kind of evidence where um, in, you know, uh, in, a, in a lot of sciences, people will say, that um, you can um, uh, you can reject the null hypothesis, right? Like this is like very good evidence that you have the um, the disease. And this, the problem is uh, that that's not enough, right? We've got to integrate that with our prior odds. So prior odds one to a thousand, strength factor of twenty, new odds of twenty to a thousand, which is still pretty low, right? Um, that's uh, twenty in a thousand and twenty, or two in one two in hundred and two, or one in fifty one. Very, like, pretty unlikely. Um, so we can look at this using the flowchart again. Uh, one to a thousand, multiply the side um, of the, um, um, the side of the initial odds that you're getting evidence for, that is having the disease. Multiply that by the strength factor of the thing you got evidence for, 20 to a thousand. And let's look at it visually. Got a thousand people who don't have the disease. You have one person who does have the disease in blue. Um, you test everybody. The person who has the disease gets test positive. Um, but 5% of the people who don't have the disease also test positive. So 50 out of a thousand people, right, are also gonna test positive. That's a lot of people um, who are testing positive. And it's just because there's so many people who don't have the disease, right? It is only 5% of them, but it's a lot of people. And now that I've tested positive, I can actually just ignore everybody outside and zoom in on uh, that sort of that area that's consistent with my evidence. So all I'm gonna do is zoom in on the people who have the positive test. And I'm interested in the ratio of people who have the positive test who have the disease versus people who have the positive test who don't have the disease. And that's one to 50. So that's it. But um, you know, so you can do this sort of population method in a lot of cases you could like imagine uh, um, uh, in the lights case, you could say there's a, a big population of Tuesdays and, you know, um, in a fifth of them, she's home. And then like think about how that integrates with the fact, but, you know, often it's not that convenient, which is why just 
prior odds times strength factor equals new odds is often the easiest way to do it. So now I'm gonna, I just wanna introduce one more type of case. This is one where you don't have a statistical uh, basis for your prior, you just have a, a, a kind of theoretical basis for the prior, but it's still really important. So suppose I say to you, I'm gonna predict this 20-sided die roll with my ESP and uh, my ESP is perfect and I'm gonna get it right. And then I say, and you know, it's a fair die. You know, I use one of your, I use one of your dice. Um, I say, you know, it's going to come up 14 and I roll and it comes up 14 and then I leave. So is it no, no further way to sort of evaluate me. Um, what should you think about whether I have ESP? Well, it's very strong evidence, right? Um, probability that I'd predict it if I had ESP, let's say about one. Probability that I'd predict it if it were just chance, 5%, right? So it's a strength factor of 20. Again, this is the kind of strength that um, in a lot of studies will say, you know, I can now reject the null hypothesis. Um, can we reject the null hypothesis of chance? Absolutely not, right? I don't have ESP. How do you know? Well, there's really a lot to say about that, right? Um, we have background knowledge about how the world works. We know a lot of people have had the opportunity to prove that they have ESP and they haven't. Um, it'd be very weird if just this one person had ESP sort of go against everything we know about physics and, um, uh, so, you know, unless you unless you kind of in the background already believe in 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 this kind of phenomenon, um, uh, you, you probably think it's very unlikely. And and so there's lots of uh, philosophical issues about how to think about theory choice and um, you know, desiderata of comparing theories to each other. But uh, you have good reason to think that ESP doesn't exist. And you know exactly what should your prior be? Well, it doesn't really matter that much, right? Maybe it's one to a million. Um, if it's one to a million, you have a strength factor of 20. Uh, you're still not worrying very much. You're now at one to 50,000. Um, and I'm gonna have to actually guess a bunch of die rolls in a row um, before you're gonna start to even really get worried. Uh, I need a strength factor of a million um, to sort of get you, uh, I'm very worried that I have ESP. So the point here is that um, this sort of Bayesian approach of considering, you know, having some prior and then considering the evidence doesn't just apply to cases like the disease case where you have some statistical background, um, some sort of base rate that's, uh, you know, a matter of like counting up people. So it's not, it's not that, you know, well, one in a million people have ESP. So what's the probability of ESP in this case? It's a theoretical assessment. Um, but, you know, whatever your uh, degree of confidence was before getting the new evidence, this is how you should update, and uh, I hope um, I hope that's useful. I'll take some questions now. Thanks. Thank you for that talk, David. Uh, we now have a few minutes for questions, so I'm just going to dive straight in with one from Quinn here in the chat. Um, do you have any recommendations for training, um, for example, books with exercise that people can practice this kind of skill? Sure. Uh, well, first, I, I should say that the book uh, Reason Better will be available. Um, through that link that I provided for, as far as I know, six months um, at least. And um, people can always contact me if they need it and it doesn't seem to be available. Um, there's a great book online called Odds and Ends by um, Justin, by um, uh, Weisberg. Um, and um, there's another book by Ian Hacking called uh, Intro to Probability and um, I think it's called Introduction to introduction to an introduction to probability and uh inductive logic mm -hmm. um but oh yeah jonathan weisberg is there so jonathan weisberg has this free text online it's really great so odds and ends i highly recommend that mm -hmm. nice good recommendations um 
And uh, another question from, okay, so diving into a bit more of the technical kind of uh, issues around calculations. Um, our second top question is around taking into account second order uncertainty. So for example, uncertain, your uncertainty about what the prior odds or the base factor are. So is there a version yeah. of this calculation that you can use to take that into consideration? This is a, this is a hard question. So among formal epistemologists, there's a disagreement about whether um, we should even represent this as anything other than um, a, just a kind of smearing of what our um, of what we assign to the probabilities. So, like the strength factor is the probability of evidence given the hypothesis over the probability of the evidence given the negation of the hypothesis. Um, what does it mean to be uncertain about what those values are? Well, those values are supposed to represent our confidence to begin with. They're not supposed to represent some kind of objective, like chance. Mm -hmm. um, so whatever it is, if you're uncertain about the chance, you're uncertain about some kind of objective probability fact or statistical fact, then that's supposed to be already built into the confidence mm -hmm. um, that's represented by those values. Um, there are, you know, so, so I would say in philosophy, there's, there's a lot of debate about um, whether we should think of um, these kinds of conditional probabilities as having some kind of objective objective answers um setting aside st statistics or chance and that we're and that what we're doing is like trying to get the right conditional probability and and those people who are more subjectivist about it who just say this is just your confidence um so uh i mean one way to say it is um we need to we obviously we'll need to work with a version of this where, where we're thinking of something like a set as really being um, what, our, um, what the value is that we assign to these things. So, you know, it's, it might be a range. So you can think of it as like smeared across, instead of one fifth, for example, in our original story, it could be smeared across um, uh, a bit of a range. And then uh, there's a lot of technical work about exactly how that ought to be done, but then you can just imagine sort of each of the, imagine um, a bunch of individuals that in your brain, as it were, like a little committee, mm -hmm. each of which has that view, and then imagine each of them updating, and then what you end up with is the range, um, uh, uh, the new committee <laughs> um, after the update. So mm -hmm. that's kind of, that's one kind of model for representing um, at least um, um, a kind of smear distribution of um, of your prior probabilities. It's not exactly the same thing as higher order uncertainty, but I can't. I, it, it's too technical to get into. It sounds like we've hit upon. You've hit, this questioner has hit upon a complex issue in epistemology. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so no, it's great though. There's lots. Of, there's, there are some great questions in the neighborhood. <laughs> Okay, um, I guess another question from uh, from someone, any rule of thumb on how to set your priors? Uh, for example, in the ESP example, um, should it be one in a million or? Yeah, well, luckily in, in, in a lot of these cases, I think it doesn't matter that much. Um, so one thing that's really, one thing that, I mean, I, I think a fundamental issue in the philosophy of science, for example, is um, roughly when you have equal, evidence between two hypotheses um is there any is there any other any other criteria desiderata like simplicity coherence um that you know sort of count or beauty maybe <laughs> elegance or something like that that by themselves ought to count as um uh things that we consider to be tr um more likely to be true um mm -hmm. 
for some some people think that's just a, a kind of practical matter, and some people think that yeah, actually, um, simple theories are more likely to be true. Um, so, but for you know, it does look like what, what what we in fact do, what scientists in fact do, for example, is to um, give more initial weight to theories that are more elegant, um, more simple, and so on. And and you know, it doesn't seem, you know, nobody's really come up with a way of doing that in extremely. I mean, there's some. There are attempts, Kolmogorov simplicity, um, to, to try to formalize what it would be and figure out exactly what a prior might be on a, um, you know, a, a range of um, theories that we don't haven't yet evaluated evidence for. But you know, in these cases, we really have a lot of other facts. Like in the ESP case, I think what we're really going on is even if you might have started off like as a baby, sort of 50-50 between ESP and not ESP. In fact, you've gone, you know, it doesn't really matter that much what your initial prior is. I think you've um, you, you've gotten enough evidence over the course of your life to sort of converge on a very low, um, um, you know, prior right now. So when I say prior, it's always prior relative to the new piece of evidence that you're coming up with. So it's the, but that doesn't mean that prior hasn't been informed by previous evidence. Um, so yeah, I think like in the ESP case, I've gotten all kinds of evidence um, throughout my life that ESP doesn't exist. Um, I don't know. Yeah, it'd be very hard to put a number on that, but uh, probably because I haven't done a great job, you know, the whole time of <laughs> properly updating in response to every <laughs> all the failed uh, versions, all the failed. Yeah, experience. but I could I could try to start over and just ask myself like, suppose I were fifty fifty, just given the way the world is, the fact that so many people have had the ability to um, to try to demonstrate the existence of their ESP if they could and so on and so forth. Like what is the, you know, and um, given what I know about human psychology, our ability to sort of uh, fall into um, uh, thinking that things are um, strange and weird when really they're just unlikely and so on. Um, it just looks exactly like a world where ESP doesn't exist mm -hmm. um, given that. And yeah, I, I, but I don't know. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, that, that is unfortunately, I guess we'll have to leave it there. That is unfortunately our time. But David is going to, I think, have a go uh, at doing the top rated question in the chat afterwards yes. around okay. how he's personally used um, at this kind of gentle basing and updating. All right. Sorry. Okay, well, thank you so much, um, David, and thank you everyone for watching. Before you leave the session, please do give us your feedback in the poll section of the live chat. Thank you. All right.